Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Tonight we're going to pick up in 2 Kings chapter 11. One of the values of moving through the Bible at the pace that we've been doing, three to five chapters a week, you get a good feel for how the authors of the Bible use their space. So just by way of illustrating, the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover thousands of years, right? Big universal events are covered, but suddenly when we get to chapter 12, the pace slows way down, and chapter 12 all the way through chapter 25 cover about 120 years, all focusing on the life of Abraham and his family, right? That shows us that the author of Genesis is intentionally slowing down the pace for focus, right? In an opposite way, tonight we're going to cover five chapters, which is not unusual for us, but we're going to cover a total of 14 kings, okay, between Israel and Judah. Uh, That's just about as many kings as we've covered since the beginning of 1 Kings. The pace speeds way up here, and the reason isn't really hard to guess. Remember, the author of 1 and 2 Kings has an agenda. He's addressing people who are already living at the end of the book who already find themselves in the captivity of Assyria for the northern tribes of Israel and Babylon for the southern tribes of Judah. And basically, this is a how did we get here book, okay? And so basically, everybody who read this book originally knows at the end is a crisis, is the destruction of Israel as it's known, is a car wreck, okay? And so what I would suggest to you is what's happening tonight is this car that's been rolling slowly backwards down a hill headed for incoming traffic or for a cliff is starting to pick up pace uh, and it's approaching even terminal velocity and so things become pretty rapid fire and if we read it uh, as we're going to do tonight you begin to despair a little bit that there's any reversing of this right as you can imagine you know, a car that picks up heavy speed, the likelihood of stopping it with any amount of force becomes less and less and less. The possibility of complete turnaround for Israel becomes less and less. Um, So that means a couple of things. One, chronologically, we're going to start covering a whole lot more time. We're going to cover a few hundred years tonight. Two, there's a lot less encouraging things happening in the text tonight. It's, it's really things just growing worse and worse as all restraints are removed. But in the midst of that, we will see that God is still present and working. And let me just remind you up front that Joel, who's one of the prophets who comes to Israel during this period that we're going to cover, not tonight, but in the, in the following week, he says to the people of Israel, even now, even now if you repent, all will be restored, right? So pick up here in chapter 11, and we're looking at Judah at the southern tribes, and so remember here that the ruling king of Judah, Ahaziah, has been killed by Jehu. 
just like the ruling king of Israel, Joram was killed by Jehu, okay? And so this leaves this vacancy in the throne. And what happens here is uh, in verse one, now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. Okay, couple of pieces here. Athaletha would not be Ahaziah's mother, but stepmother, okay? And if you remember, Ahaziah's family has this kind of interwovenness with Ahab. There was some intermarriage that happened between the kingdoms a few generations back that has continued. And so this woman is most likely the last remnant of the household of Ahab. And the way that she behaves instantly reminds us of Jezebel. But dial back for a second and remember with me um, that the house of Ahab and what happens in Israel, this whole period of time where Baal worship is embraced by the people of Israel. And because of that, judgment comes on the household of Omri, on Ahab and his whole family. And extensively that happens through Jehu. Remember that Judah so far has maintained faithfulness right? They, they haven't always followed the Lord, but they haven't built for themselves golden calves like Israel has. They haven't given themselves over to Baal. All of that shifts drastically and suddenly tonight. We have been seeing how threatened Israel is, but this is the first time where we find ourselves being really nervous about Judah. Second thing I want you to understand here is not only is this woman the mother-in-law, but look at what she does. It says she destroyed all the royal family, okay? That is, at least by blood, her grandchildren. That's what we're talking about. The idea here is she's trying to get rid of anyone who has legitimacy to rule so that she can rule, okay? And so for a short period of time, we're not told how long, there's effectively a queen reigning in Israel and to keep herself in power, she tries to eradicate the entire household, which once again, she shares family ties with. Verse two, but Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. Okay, and so one of the family members acts quickly and hides one of the sons away. Now, once again, the, the family is close enough here. It's not that she doesn't know she missed one. She just doesn't know where he is, okay? He's hidden from her. And verse three, he remained with her, that's with the nurse, six years hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land, okay? So notice here, her reign goes on for six years and as we'll see in a second, during that time she fully establishes this counter-religion of worshiping Baal right in Jerusalem. Has it fully running with a temple and with a priesthood and all these things. Uh, now the reason why uh, Joash is kept in hiding is because he's really, really young. He's an infant when this all goes down, okay? And so he's basically hiding, awaiting him to be old enough to do something about it. And so we read here in verse four, in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. Now it's not mentioned in this first reference to Jehoiada, but he is the high priest, okay? And so get the picture here, this 
tumultuous takeover happens in the royal household. And the high priest of Israel, a Levite from the family of Aaron, he sees all of this go down. And he's trying to maintain Jerusalem and Judea's faithfulness to the Lord. And so what he does here is knowing that Joash still exists, knowing that he's getting older and is about seven years old now, he calls for the armies of Israel, the armies of Judah in particular. He calls them, he invites them to the temple, and it says in the next verse, uh, or halfway through verse four, he made a covenant with them and put them under the oath in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. Okay. So notice he starts with an NDA, right? A non-disclosure agreement. He says, what I'm about to show you, you can't tell anyone. And then he pulls back the curtain and here is the last remaining son of Ahaziah okay? that everybody thought was gone or missing or dead or whatever. And then we see he also has a plan. He commanded them, verse five, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate of Sir and a third at the gate behind the guards, they shall guard the palace, okay? And so he takes these soldiers and he puts them on rotation uh, around a couple of places. One, the temple where Jehoash is. Two, the palace where the queen is. And then notice uh, the second one there is, is the, the gate sir, which is the horse gate, okay? And so if Athaletha has her own cavalry, this is the access point. So it's basically front and back at the palace, if you will, okay? And so he stations all of this, and this is basically security for the coronation he has planned, okay? And so we read here, verse seven, the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in hand, and whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death but with the king when he goes out and when he comes in, okay? And so these are to be the armed guards of the child king, okay? Uh, the army is on board with this. Verse nine, the captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave the captains the spears and the shields that had been King's David's, which were in the house of the Lord. Now, it may be there that they're being armed from the household of David symbolically, right? This is, this is the old weaponry. These are the things that hung in the household of David that, uh, that decorated his personal guard because that's now what they are. They're now the royal guard. It also may be, because this word for spear and shield can be in the singular, that these have to do with the coronation itself, right? Have you ever watched a dramatization of a coronation in England? Right, where not only do they have the crown, but they also have the scepter, okay? It may be that the spear and shield are symbolically part of the Davidic line coronation, and they're not for the guards, but for presenting to young Joash to hold during the ceremony, okay? Verse 11, the guards stood, every man with his weapon in his hand from the south side of the house to the north side of the house around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Verse 12, then he brought out the king's son and put a crown on him and gave him the testimony. Okay, the testimony there is talking about the book of Moses, the covenant. If you remember back in the book of Deuteronomy, kings were to have a handwritten copy of the book of Moses 
that they were to meditate on and study the rest of their lives to make them a good king. And so that's what is handed here too. In a similar way, um, some modern Western countries will present a Bible at a coronation of royalty or something like that, okay? So verse 12, they brought out the king's son, they put the crown on him, they gave him the testimony and they proclaimed him king and anointed him and clapped their hands and said, long live the king. Now notice what Jehoiada's whole plan is here. It's to install the king and, and therefore completely ignore and invalidate this queen. Just publicly recognize this king with the protection to keep him in, off, in office, because remember, he's seven years old. Um, but in doing so, to deny uh, Athaletha has any right to rule and end what's going on right now. Verse 13, when Athaletha heard the noise... Of the guard and the people, she went to the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced, blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. Which is a striking statement to come out of this particular mouth, is it not? She's the one who treasonously took the throne by eradicating all of the legitimate, legitimate, um, successors. Um, but she also knows exactly what this means. You know, there, there can be only one. And so if this is happening, it's a, directly against her rule. Verse 15, Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put her to death with the sword, anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. Okay. And so here she is at the edge of the temple precincts, and she can see what's going on with the rest of the crowds, and he says, remove her and put her to death, take her life. Verse 16, so they laid hands on her and she, as she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. Now, what we have at this point is basically this child king ruling with the help, support, and full advisory of the high priest. Okay, right? Jehoiada here is operating uh, as the king's advisor because he's not yet fit to rule. And because of that, it leads to some restoration. It leads to some fixing of where Jerusalem at, is at. Verse 17, Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. And so notice there's a renewal of covenant that happens here. We see this throughout Israel's history. It's coming back and going, okay, we've been far from you, Lord. Now we agree again. You and you only, we will keep the covenant. We are your people. You are our God. And that's something that Jehoiada has the king do as well. Okay? And then there's also a covenant between the king and the people. Okay? There's an agreement uh, between the king and the people. Although... Uh, there is a royal line in Israel, and it is a bloodline monarchy. It's one that involves the consent and participation of the people. Okay? Remember, it's, it's Israel as a whole that asked for a king in the beginning, um, and at that point we see the same arrangement here, a covenant made between them. Here's what it, here are the stipulations for the king on behalf of the people. Here are the stipulations on the, for the people on behalf of the king. And then next, verse 18, all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images, and they broke in pieces and killed Matin, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. 
Okay, and so as I said, during this queen's reign, she starts up this cult of Baal, builds them a temple, appoints a priesthood, everything's functioning, and so here, that's completely destroyed. In verse 19, he took the captains, the Karites, the guards, and the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house, and he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. And then it adds here in verse 21, Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. Okay, chapter 12, verse one. In the seventh year of Jehu, remember Jehu was the king of Israel, and so as we've seen over and over again, each of the reigns is dated by where they begin in the other kingdom's reign, okay? So this is when this goes down. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years, or until he was 47, in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Okay, and so he listens to this faithful advisor, this high priest, and because of that, he really seeks the restoration of the worship of Jehovah. Nevertheless, verse three, the high places were not taken away and the people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Now remember, all the way back in the beginning, God appoints Jerusalem to be the one place, one temple, where all the sacrifices are done. But this worship on the high places has persisted since the days of Solomon's son, and it has continued. And so even during relatively good reigns of the household of David, almost always we find this nevertheless, okay? And so what we've seen for the most part in in Jerusalem and Judea Uh, is that their worship has maintained and it's dipped, and here was a really far dip, but it's never improved past that flat line at the beginning, okay? And so um, here are the things, here is the um, restoration of the worship of of Jehovah that goes on during Jehoash's reign. Verse four, Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from assessment of persons and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring to the house of the Lord. Let the priest take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. Now, this temple, which was built by Solomon, is about 100 years old now, okay? And so here he recognizes that it's in disrepair and he comes up with a plan to restore the building itself. And he basically says all the financial contributions that usually come in, okay? And so you can read about the things that involve this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular. He says, start to set those aside and begin to repair the temple. But, verse 6, by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests had made no repairs on the house, okay? Now, probably the reason that this is the case is because one of the things that these monies were for were the sustaining of the priests and the tribe that they come from, from Levi. And so they continue to sustain themselves, uh, but they don't actually invest in the the temple. They don't make the repairs that uh, Jehoash has requested. Verse seven, therefore King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, why are you not repairing the house? Now, therefore, take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. So the priest agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not, uh, and that they should not repair the house. 
Okay, and so he comes up with a different system here. Verse 9, then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priests who guarded the threshold put in all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And then they would give that money that was weighed out in the hands of the workmen who the oversight of the house of the Lord. Okay, in other words, he brings in an oversight committee. Okay, he makes it so the process uh, has accountability to it. And so there's a place where all of the funds are deposited. There's a team that counts all of the funds and the funds are handed directly to the overseers of the work. So the job gets done. Um, It's interesting how often the Bible takes time to emphasize that things like this are done above board. Okay, Uh, by way of illustration, consider when Paul uh, has it on his heart to visit all of the churches he's planted throughout the Roman Empire and take up an offering for the church in Jerusalem um, that is dealing with some uh, financial constraints and difficulties right now. And so he goes around and he goes to all of these churches who don't know the people in Jerusalem, who have never been to Jerusalem, and he gathers up all this money and he's going to carry it across the known world at that time and supposedly, you know, give it to this congregation. Remember, this is in the first century, uh, so there's not going to be a YouTube video of of this donation at the end of the road, right? How do these people know the donation was given? They just have to trust Paul. Now, Paul could have very easily said, listen, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by him. I think I'm trustworthy, but he doesn't. He says, actually, I want each and every one of you churches to send a representative with me to carry your own money. Okay, He he sets up a visible and transparent and accountable system so everybody knows what's up. And that's what Jehoash is trying to do here. Um, And so he sets this up, and it works. And so, verse 11... They would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stonecutters, as well as to buy timber and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord, for any outlay for the repairs to the house. But there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord." I assume that statement is added so we recognize what's being done here is what's essential, okay? When the temple was built, it was built by Solomon, the wealthiest king Israel ever had, and it was decked out with every accoutrement. That is not the time that we are in anymore, okay? And so he doesn't seek to garnish the temple with every advantage just to get it in fully functioning order. And the author here wants us to know that that's how the money was spent, okay? And so it's not garish or abundant. It's just for the repairs. Uh, It continues here in verse 14. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it, and they did not ask an accounting from the men in whose hand they delivered the money to pay out the workmen, for they dealt honestly. Now, why does it make that statement? Probably because that's what was going on in the priesthood. You know, uh, you may remember last year where it was reported that the Pentagon had a, a accounting error of a tremendous amount of money, millions and millions of dollars that they just didn't know what happened to, okay? That's what was going on with the Levites. 
23rd year of rain comes and Jehoash goes, hey, how's the project going? And they go, well, we haven't really done anything. And goes, well, where's the money? And they all look around and go, you know. And so he comes up with a system, but it points out here that those who did handle the money were so faithful with it that nobody could question it. That it was clear that they had been honest uh, with the work. Verse 16, also it says here, the money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. So the last statement that's made here about it being above board was that they didn't take this out of the Levites' promised and required allowance. Okay. Even despite the fact that they had been not doing what they were asked to do and unfaithful handling the excess finances, uh, he doesn't penalize them uh, or tax them. He makes sure that they're taken care of. And once again, that makes a good deal of sense because restoring the temple without keeping the priesthood going doesn't work. The two go hand in hand. Now, verse 17, at that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath, that's a Philistine city, and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his father, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all that was gold that was found in the treasury of the house of the Lord, of the king's house, and sent it to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. That's hard to reconcile with what we just read, isn't it? He spends all this time devoting on rebuilding the temple and then this entire treasury that's multiple generations deep that's tied to this, as soon as he's threatened by an enemy power, he just hands it over to buy them off. Okay? He sees what they do to Gath and he goes, oh. And so his protection policy for the kingdom is to uh, diminish his own treasury. Okay? Now this is going to be a tremendously common expression for the rest of of Israel and Judah's time. In fact, that's one of the things that most significantly leads to the destruction of the northern tribes of Israel under Assyria, because basically they, they promote Assyria by, by, well, like the mob, by paying them for protection, until eventually the Assyrians go, well, if you can't, if you need protection from us, then you probably need protection from us, and they just take them over, okay? Uh, but here, this is the policy, to understand this, it's helpful to turn to Chronicles. Now, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles run parallel. That's one of the reasons why when we finish 2 Kings, we're not going to jump right into Chronicles, because I'm pretty sure we've all had enough of this particular portion of the history of Israel. Um, but it is beneficial because it provides a slightly different perspective. In the same way that the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all draw on similar sources, all follow that generally the same structure, um, but also are different because of the intentions of the authors. And so it helps us to see the ministry of Jesus Christ in three dimensions instead of just one. So also first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles shed light on one another because they're written for different purposes, okay? And so I'll reference a few places tonight where we can do just that. Um, but one of the places that's helpful is with Joash. Okay, so notice what it says in verse 19. The rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Yes, they are. That's what I just told you. Verse 20, his servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Silla. Okay, and so this did what was right in the eyes of the Lord raised by the priest ends up 
being subject to a conspiracy and taken out, okay? How does he get to that place? The author of Kings doesn't fill in the details, but Chronicles does, okay? First off, let's finish this passage, verse uh, 21. It was Josachar, the son of Shimea, and uh, Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, now pause and listen to what it tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. So if you see the heading there of chapter 24, it probably says Joash repairs the temple. That's what we've been looking at. But I want to draw your attention to verse 15. Okay. Verse 15 says, But Jehoiada, remember that's the high priest, grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he'd done good in Israel towards God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the prince princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the ashram and the idols. Okay, and so he is a faithful king under the tutelage of Jehoiada, but when Jehoiada dies, the other leaders in Israel, what's called the princes here, come to him, and they twist his arm and turn him away from this agenda and he begins to embrace idolatry. It's similar to what happens in Solomon's rule. Solomon starts faithful to the Lord, builds the temple, but in his old age, his many foreign wives turn his heart away from the Lord, and he begins to worship idols, and he begins to build houses for other gods in Israel, right? Um, and so it's, it's unfortunate here. What we discover then is the restoration and even the revival that happens in Israel in this time is not due to King Jehoash but to the faithfulness of Jehoiada. And as soon as he's off the scene, as is often the case in Israel's history, the people begin to go another way. And so because of that, God brings judgment on Jehoash and he ends up dying uh, through conspiracy. Side note, really, really rare in Judah. Super common in Israel, right? It's in Israel, we've already been through five different dynasties and everyone has ended with a conspiracy like this. Somebody has just killed the ruling king and said, I'm king now. That hasn't been happening in Jerusalem except for this crazy mother-in-law that steps in and slaughters all of the kids and then it happens to him as well, okay? One of the things the author wants us to get the point of as we read this is that it sounds a lot like Israel and that should make us nervous, okay? Israel is much closer to destruction. It's, a, it's gonna be 100 years after the destruction of the northern tribes that Judah follows suit, okay? But... They're starting to move in that way. We're not going to take the time tonight, but if you look at Ezekiel 16, it lays out both Israel and Judah as if they were God's wives uh, and that they've both been unfaithful. In fact, it, it says that they're so unfaithful it compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. It goes there. It really pushes. Um, but one of the things he says is, Judah, you saw your older sister and all of her infidelity and the fact that it led to destruction and judgment and you still didn't learn from her mistakes and walked in her way, okay? We're starting to see illustrations of that in the text now, concerns about Judah that even though this is the line of David, even though they have the priesthood and the temple, all is not well in Jerusalem. Chapter 13, 
In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. Okay, so now we shift, and we're moving to the northern tribes in Israel, and Jehu is replaced by his son, Jehoahaz. But, verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin and did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into Hazael, the king of Syria, into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Okay, so throughout Jehoahaz's uh, rule, God is using Syria to bring consequence on them, to try and drive them back into God's arms. And so this is going on, and notice it doesn't stop with Hazael's death, but his son Behadad, Ben-Hadad picks it up, and he's going to be a significant player in the next few chapters. So verse 4, Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Okay, It's interesting to me, First off, Jesus tells a parable of a, of a man sending both his sons into the field. And one says, I'm not going to go. I'm going to disobey. Whatever, I'm not doing that. And then he has a change of heart and ends up going anyways. And the other son says, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then he has a change of heart and he doesn't go. And he just asks, which son did the will of the father? Right? The, the thing is, the way that lives play out, like we saw with Joash, uh, it, it takes a whole life to tell the story. And whether it's a tragedy or a comedy, whether you're faithful or unfaithful, whether it's a life of obedience or disobedience, you need the whole life to weigh in the balances. And so it's interesting here, we have Joash who starts well and finishes poorly, and now we're going, oh, holy cow, is everything upside down? In Israel, do we have a king that starts same place everyone's been before him and actually improves. Here, in the middle of his life, even though he's been following in the footsteps of Jeroboam, his worship to God has been unfaithful, he gets the message of what Syria means. He experiences the pain of judgment and he cries out to the Lord for deliverance. And notice God hears him. Just like that parable that Jesus tells, in Ezekiel, God says basically, Will I bring judgment on the repentant? If a man turns from his sins, will I not relent on bringing judgment? And he says, in the same way, if a man is obedient and then he repents of his obedience, will I not bring judgment? And that seems to be what's going on here. Is, is this revival in Israel? Is this a complete change of heart? But unfortunately, things aren't what they first appear to be. And so God graciously brings deliverance, verse 5. The Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Now, the, the Savior, the Deliverer here, is not named, but this is just as it was in the days of the judges, right? In the days of the judges, what we see is uh, that Israel turns from the Lord and is unfaithful, so he gives them over to their enemies, and then when they cry out for deliverance, he raises up a Deliverer. That's what's happening again. But even this should start to make us go, oh, wait, okay, this isn't what I thought. Because what happens in, that, uh, in the book of Judges? That deliverance is always temporary. God does it not because they've repented, but because they've cried out and he just compassionately sends them a deliverer. But the deliverer doesn't bring revival. 
doesn't restore Israel. It just alleviates the pain and that's the end. And so, verse 6, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. Notice that. So he's actually got an Asherah pole. That's the female consort of the god Baal. She, he's got one of those set up right in the capital city. Okay? This is the worship that's going on. And he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers him, and that stays put. Again, it's a sober reminder that sometimes when we look in bitterness at God's discipline in our lives, or even when we look at the difficulty other people have gone through, and we think, if you would just be kind to them, if you would just be gracious, no doubt they would change their ways. Just relent a little bit, ease off, bring about some miraculous deliverance. But just like in the days of Jesus, miracles don't equal faith, not necessarily. Here, they see God work on their behalf, and they know that it's the work of God, but it doesn't change their hearts. Verse 7, for there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at a threshing. Okay, and so uh, over the course of his life, the Syrian army just decimates his until he only has a remnant left. Verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did, his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of King of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his place. Okay, once again, it can be hard to keep track of because we just met Joash, king of Judah, and this is Joash, king of Israel, who rules after him. So it can be hard to keep them straight. Uh, in fact, it's going to get worse. But verse 10 in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. And so notice here, they give us a phonetic difference so we can keep track of them in the same context. Joash, we've already met, he's the one who we already read about the death of, but suddenly there's another Joash on the throne in Israel, and so one of them becomes Jehoahash, so we can keep them uh, separate, as if that helps our... English American minds. Verse 11, he also, remember this is uh, in Israel, another generation now, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did and the might which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Okay, now notice there, we have a note that there is one significant thing in his life, and that's civil war. Okay, he fought against a, a king that we haven't even met yet, but will tonight, and he fought mightily. But that's all, that's the whole story of his life. He took over the throne, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, there is this one mighty thing he did, which was actually a terrible thing, because it was against, um, against the king of Judah, it's civil war. Uh, and then verse 13, Joash slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat on his throne and Joash was, well, uh, was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So notice here, his son's name is Jeroboam. Now in English practice, or actually we just draw this from Latin practice, we get this from popes and kings of the whole Western lineage, we would call this Jeroboam II, okay? Not Jeroboam Jr., because that's not his dad's name, right? But there's already been a Jeroboam in the line. Okay. And so just like uh, Henry VIII wasn't the son of Henry VII, 
but there was a uh, consistent presence of Henrys in English history. So also here we get Jeroboam. You won't see this in your Bible because it's not a Hebrew way of saying things, but if you read history books, we'll talk about Jeroboam II. That's who we're talking about here, okay. Now notice, it's at this point when Elisha dies. He hasn't been present in the narrative for quite a while, but he has still been alive and still active. And so we can assume all of the things that God has been doing through Elijah, he's continued to do, but the author doesn't need to tell us that story. He's focusing now on this downward slope, okay? Now, uh, let's just pick up here, verse 14. Now, when Elijah had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, okay, which is Hebrew way of saying in the last days of Elijah's life, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Interestingly enough, that's the same language that Elisha uses when Elijah is taken up away from him, right? And so it's probably being done here uh, by Joash, king of Israel, honorably. He's recognizing the significance of Elijah's ministry. And notice he calls him the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. He is the strength in fact, it may be, some commentators suggest, that Elisha is the deliverer. The only reason I would say that's probably not likely is why wouldn't they name him? We know who Elijah is, okay? But here he comes, he knows Elijah's in the last days of his life. Uh, but verse 15, Elijah said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows and he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow and he drew it. And Elijah laid his hand on the king's hand. And he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it, and Elijah said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you've made an end of them. Okay, and so even in his dying days, he's operating as a prophet, and he speaks here symbolically of a coming victory against this same Syrian household that begins with Hazael and continues with his son Ben-Hadad. And so he says, I want you to open a window, draw your bow, and launch an arrow. And he says, that arrow represents the coming victory. He shoots it out to the east because that's where Syria is, okay? But there's a second part to this. And so verse 18, he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with him. And he struck them three times and stopped, okay? So he pulls the rest of the arrows out of the quiver, and Elijah said, strike the ground with him. And he strikes the ground, and he does it again, and he does it a third time, and then he stops and he looks at Elijah, okay? Verse 19, the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times, okay? Now, this seems a little bit trite, doesn't it? He doesn't tell him to keep striking. He doesn't tell him how many times. In fact, I would say the fact that he struck it more than once is at least a move in the right direction. But what this really shows, once again, symbolically, uh, is, is where the king's really at. It's not about the arrows in the ground, okay? He just knows that he doesn't, uh, he doesn't have it in him to, to go the distance, and so here it's demonstrated for him, and actually we'll see that it is exactly three victories and no more uh, that Joash is going to have over the king of Syria. But this is kind of the final prophetic piece of Elijah's ministry, and once again, it's of victory. It's of God graciously delivering Israel despite the fact 
remember here that Jehoash is not a good king. Okay? Verse 22, Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. And so God says, uh, basically our author tells us here that God was compassionate and provided these victories not because of Jehoahaz, not because of repentance in Israel, but because of Abraham, because of Isaac, because of Jacob. Okay, God is long-suffering and patient with Israel because he's determined to keep his promises that he made to Abraham. And so he's merciful with Israel. And notice here it says they would not destroy them, uh, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Two things there. One, would not destroy him. That's in perpetuity. The audience that's reading this is still alive. Israel still exists, but they have been removed from the land. That's one of the few places of hope that's listed here that says basically God's not done yet. But also, God was patient in throwing you out of the land, of ejecting you from the land until this day, even though here the need was already. God is so patient within Israel. Generations go by, um, and God doesn't bring about what he's already said he's going to bring bring about all the way back in the time of the first Jeroboam. And it's important that we go back. Okay, so it's actually helpful that we did this in the wrong order. Um, not that I, you know, am outweighing the author of the Bible and his structure. But, uh, but notice, in between these two things, okay, Elijah's prophecy about Syria and the coming to pass of that and why God did it, in the middle is the death of Elijah. And it seems so random and out of place. Verse 20, so Elijah died and they buried him. Now the bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elijah. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. Okay. So notice what's happening here. Elijah's buried, he's in a tomb, and then because some raiders are on the way, another Israelite who's being buried is relatively hastily just thrown into the cave because it's too dangerous for them to go through all the rites. They don't know that Elijah's bones are in there. They don't know that his body's in there. And as soon as this man touches him, he comes back to life and walks out of the cave. Now, that is miraculous. But as I already told you, there are many miracles that Elijah did over his life that the author doesn't take time to record. What's really interesting here uh, is that that word in verse 21, as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elijah. That's the same word that's used at the end of verse 23 when it says that God cast Israel from their presence. Okay. I would suggest to you that the author puts these stories juxtaposed like this because he wants to make a symbolic point. Okay. God is going to cast Israel away, but it leads towards resurrection. God's plan in sending them out is not just to punish them. It's not because he's had enough. It's actually to bring about restoration. In fact, Israel's great sin throughout their history leading up to the Babylonian exile is idolatry, right? And then they go into Babylon, which is the ancient world equivalent of, uh, you know, the idol hall of fame, okay? 
Uh, the Babylonians were so devoted uh, to their gods. When we've dug up Babylonian cities today, we found closets that are floor to ceiling idols. Okay? They were holy as a people given over to the worship of other gods. Okay? Israel lives in the midst of that, and then when they return in the days of uh, Esther, Nehemiah, in the days of Ezra, in the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, and they're restored into the land of Israel, and that leads through the, what we call the 400 silent years between the Old and New Testament. By the time Jesus gets on the scene, does Israel have a problem with idolatry, of worshiping the gods of the other nations? They do not. They have their own problems. They still are awaiting the Messiah. They've, they've developed this self-righteousness, but there's no worshiper of Baals in Judaism anymore. It's always made me think of, you know, the old TV shows where a mother catches her five-year-old son smoking, so she buys him an entire pack and just says, you need to smoke them all right now, right? That's Israel, for whatever reason, comes out of Babylon purified. In fact, Ezekiel uses this same metaphor for death and resurrection for what God is doing. He pictures a valley of dry bones, and he says, Ezekiel, God's speaking to him, and he says, what do you see? He says, I see a bunch of dead people. And he says, tell me, can these dead people live? And Ezekiel, knowing who he's talking to, says, Lord, you know. And a wind comes, and he watches as flesh upon flesh and skin over that flesh is knit onto these bodies, and suddenly there's life. That's what God is going to do with Israel. Okay, and so here, this is put here to remind us of the fact that the God who throws away can bring about life. And that's his agenda, that's his plan for Israel. So, verse 24 when Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, uh, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that were taken from Jehoahaz, his father in war, three times. Excuse me, three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities for Israel, just as was promised, right? Just as the arrows struck the ground three times. Okay, chapter 14. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, uh, Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Yet not like David his father, he did uh, in all things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Okay, and so after uh, Joash blows it, his son uh, follows, and he actually does um, a good job. In fact, notice specifically here, verse 5, as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who struck down the king, his father. Okay, so his first act of business is to deal with the criminals that have taken his dad's life. Okay. One of the things that that shows us is that he wasn't in on the plot. Okay. That this wasn't his takeover to get the rain out of his father's hand, which is not an uncommon thing in the ancient world. And so he brings those who have wrongly killed his father to justice. But, verse 6, he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. When we look at ancient legal codes, like the Code of Hammurabi, for example, entire family executions for treason against royalty is a pretty common thing. 
But this king is acquainted enough with the book of Moses, which remember he would have written his own copy, and desiring enough to obey it that he draws the line and only kills those who have committed the crime and not their children. Okay, he wants to obey the Lord. Related to that, verse 7, he struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm and called it Jokthio, which is its name to this day. Now, Edom, who are the descendants of Esau, during the reign of Solomon, they are uh, paying tribute to Israel, but eventually they shake off the reins of that. But here is a faithful king, and we see a little bit of reversal on that. Um, there has been decay in God's promises because of Israel's disobedience. But this king is faithful, and there's some restoration of those things. Uh, then, verse 8, Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. Okay. What he does here is he basically goes to the king of Israel, and he says, Hey, let's fight. He says, I'm ready to stand against you. Okay. He's picking a fight with the rest of Israel, okay? Now, the reason he's doing that becomes very clear in the response that he gets from the king of Israel, verse nine. That Joash, Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon, said to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife, and a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle, okay? Can you get the parable here? It's, it's pretty simple. It's not a one-to-one -one comparison to the situation, but he basically says, you're just a little weed, and I am a giant tree, and you're trying to treat me on equal terms. He says, even a pig wandering by would trample you into the ground. Okay, that's the point that he's making. And then notice as he makes the punchline here, verse 10, you've indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay at home, for why should you provoke trouble so that you fall? you and Judah with you. You see what the problem was? Amaziah has just come off this victory. He's riding high on it, and he's willing to take over. He's ready to take over the world. And so he comes boastfully, arrogantly, full of pride, and picks a fight with Israel. And he says, just take your victory and let that be enough. Now, his pride is his undoing. And that's another theme that we're going to start seeing really heavily in these last few kings we're going to look at tonight is the significant danger of pride. Okay? I already unpacked for you what's really going on, right? Amaziah has been faithful to the Lord, wants to follow the Lord, and so God has always promised victory to the kings of Israel who keep the covenant. That's why he's overcome Edom. Not because he's something great. Not because he's something strong. Um, but he picks a fight with Israel. But, verse 11... Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, the king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Okay. We already read about this. Remember when we were reading the only thing that this king is known for? It's for routing the king of Judah right here. right? But he didn't pick the fight. He just, uh, you know, um, Amaziah wouldn't back down. He warned him, and he wouldn't back down, and so there's a fight here. And so, verse 13, Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, 
from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. He seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he took uh, and he returned to Samaria. Okay, so he, he takes from the treasury, he knocks down the wall. Most of this is just humiliation. And then he takes hostages, which is basically a guarantee that it's not going to happen again. In fact, some scholars believe that one of those hostages is the king of Judah himself. Okay, and so we get to this odd place where the king of Israel uh, has living in his house the king of Judah, but he's really overseeing things. Okay, verse 15. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash that he did and his might and how he fought with Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel and Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Is anyone having deja vu? We already read this. We read this a chapter ago. Why is it here? There are some commentators who go, okay, this is just a mistake. But I would suggest to you that it's here intentionally because he wants to remind us of these things before he tells us about the death of uh, Amaziah. And so verse 17, Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. Okay, a couple of notes here. Remember, uh, Amaziah here is the one who rightly put the conspirators against his father to death. But then he ends up suffering the same fate. Okay. The reason why we're reminded of uh, Jehoash and his death here is a contrast. You see, what we need to remember is all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 12, we have Jeroboam and Rehoboam reigning over Judah and Israel. This is the first generation of the split of the nation. And Jeroboam, if I remember right, is giving explicit instructions in 1 Kings 12 not to fight Rehoboam. Because Judah and Israel are one people. Okay. And so here, the peacekeeper, even though eventually he goes to war, because what else is he going to do? Just let him attack and kill his people? The peacekeeper dies in peace, despite the fact that he was not a good king. And the king who starts off really well because of his arrogance and his pride and his attack on his own people dies at the hand of a conspiracy just like he'd prevented in his father. In fact, notice this conspiracy, once again, doesn't lead to a new dynasty taking over. His son still takes the throne. In fact, if you look closely, verse 19, sorry, verse 20, they brought him on horses and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city and all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. This is a popular assassination. It's his own people who take him out because they don't want him to be king anymore. Why? Because he just picked a fight with Israel and lost. Okay, and so he loses his reign and they just put his son in his place. And then we have one final note, verse 22. 
he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Getting back to Jeroboam II. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He lives up to his namesake, which he had made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by a servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Okay, notice a few things here. First off, when it mentions that restoration, 1 Kings 8.65 tells us that that was the furthest reaches in the north of Solomon's kingdom. Okay, so one of the notable things that happens during Jeroboam's reign is he gets back the northern land that's been eaten away by Syria over these years. It makes us think of Solomon. It makes us wonder if Jeroboam is really bringing us backwards. In fact, we're told here that this happens to fulfill the word of a prophet you probably know, Jonah. Jonah of the book of Jonah, okay? And so he is, he is known as a prophet in Israel, and he's given a prophecy to the king of Israel that he's going to be able to restore the land, and he does so. Verse 26, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, bitter for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So once again, what motivates this restoration? Not the good behavior of Jeroboam, but God's compassion, his heart for Israel. And so verse 27, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God's not going to allow them to be completely overcome. Thank you, Richard. He's not going to allow them to be completely uh, destroyed and so he gives them a buffer again. He restores the land, but it doesn't change the fact that Jer Jeroboam is a wicked king. In fact, this is the fourth descendant of Jehu. And if you go back and you read Jehu's story, Jehu was told that his sons would rule for four generations. Okay? But every son that follows Jehu has been labeled wicked. And so none of them seek to follow the Lord, but God graciously, in response to Jehu, lets it last until the life of Jeroboam, but Jeroboam's son is going to be struck down and everything's going to change. Verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might and how he fought and how he restored Damascus at Hamath to Judah in Israel, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. Now, we've been moving pretty fast, but chapter 15 moves even faster, okay? So let's, let's finish this and call it a night. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, the king of Judah, began to reign. Now, just to pause, we've already been introduced to the prophetic ministry of Jonah, right? Elisha is off the scene, but other prophets are starting to come in. Once we get here to the reign of Azariah, uh, this would also include Hosea, and Amos. Hosea 1.1 and Amos 1.1, uh, most of the minor prophets, some of the major prophets, tell us the reigning kings during their service, okay? And so that brings us up to this. We're also getting right on the cusp of Isaiah's ministry, and then when we get to the death of Azariah, that's when we get to Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 6 and chapter 7. In the day that King Uzziah died, same king here, that's when he sees this vision of the throne room, okay? And so God is sending beyond Elijah and Elisha prophets, Amos, Isaiah, 
Hosea, uh, Jonah, and they're all operating during this time. Okay, and so Azariah begins to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper through the days of his death, and he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Okay, so he reigns for 52 years, but he spends a portion of that in quarantine, uh, and he's not really reigning anymore. At that point, his son steps in and starts to manage the kingdom until his death. Notice here it says that the Lord struck him with leprosy, but it doesn't tell us the details of this. Chronicles does, and once again, we find out it has to do with pride. Okay, and so if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 26... Starting in verse 16, um, we're told about Uzziah. Now, Azariah, Uzziah, that's the same person, okay? Verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered, entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him, okay? Now, you know why his name is Uzziah here, so we can tell the difference between the ruling priest who shares his name, Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood the king Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Okay. Aaron's family knows this personally, how high stakes ministry in the temple is. Remember Aaron's first two sons, they go in and they offer strange fire to the Lord and they're struck dead on the day the tabernacle is dedicated. Think of when the people stand against, um, and these ones are, are uh, Levites as well, when the Kohathites uh, stand against the family of Aaron, Aaron and they say, we're just as good as you, we can be priests as well. And the Lord opens the earth and they're devoured, right? There's a pattern here and now the king, specifically the author of Chronicles tells us because he was so proud, he goes, incense is a big deal. I'm a big deal. I'm going to offer the incense. And notice here, the priests come armed to protect the holiness of God and the sanctity of the temple, and they say, don't do it. Verse 19, Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests and in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. He can't even visit the temple anymore because he's a leper. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. But notice, just like his father, pride is his undoing. With his father, it was pride that made him push the limits and fight against the king of Israel. And with Uzziah, his pride makes him push the limits and enter into a rule that's uh, a reign, a role that is not his, uh, but is to be left to the Levites. I think um, this pattern here points out uh, a significant flaw in the kings of Judah. 
And I mean flaw in the sense of like a fault line. We're starting to see something decay. God is still doing the victories, but men are taking the credit. And even though he's bringing clear and visible judgment upon them, they're starting to get off base. They're losing their identity as, as God is their king, as God is their savior, as God brings the victory. They're starting to sound a whole lot more like the pagan kings we encounter in the Bible. Remember, it's Nebuchadnezzar after he's conquered basically the whole known world and is walking through his palace looking at all of his wealth. And he goes, look at what I have built. And he hears God speaking from heaven and says, you fool. Are you really going to take the credit for what I have done? And he's struck mad, right? That's what we're finding in the house of Jerusalem, in the line of David right now. Going back to chapter 15 of 2 Kings, uh, verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Z uh, Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Ibleam and put him to death. And he reigned in his place. Here, the dynasty of Jehu ends. Right after its fourth generation, six months into the fifth generation, and it's um, once again assassination. And so um, Shalom takes over, verse 11. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they're written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. There's not much more to read there. It was only six months' reign. Uh, this was the promise that the Lord had given to Jehu Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Now, Shalom follows. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, the king of Judah. There, notice, we get the chronicle spelling of Azariah, Uzziah. And he reigned one month in Samaria. Okay. So just like Zimri before him, he doesn't last very long, and he's also taken out. Uh, Menanem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tisra and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now, the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they're written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel at that time. Mananem sacked Tipsa and all who were in it, and its territory from Tizra on, because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it and ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. Read that for what it is. It's tremendously cruel, okay? This is the quality of the king in Israel in this day. And once again, if you read the annals of the history of the kings in the ancient Near East, this is actually really common elsewhere, okay? In the ancient world, the king is the final authority. He does what he wants. You conquer, your power is your justification to do what you want. And anyone who offends the king, right, offends the gods, all these things. But that's not how it was to be in Israel. But here, this is the point where Israel is, where Shalom, who, who reigns here, and only for a month. Why only for a month? Because he's just like the foreign kings. He's cruel and terrible. 17, in the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Mehanim, son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel. And he reigned 10 years in Samaria, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the, uh, in all his days of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Is that getting repetitive? Okay. Now we're going generation after generation without change, without restoration, without restraint, car is picking up pace. And then notice verse 19, pull the king of Assyria. Okay. 
This is the beginning of the end. Paul's name, uh, as we'll encounter in just a minute, uh, is also, uh, it's a really difficult one. I've got to read it. I can't just quote it. Um, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, okay? He's this Assyrian king, and he will be the one that eventually brings judgment on Israel. He's called Pul here because that's a title given him by the Babylonians. Actually, not at this time, but forward. But it would be the name that the audience reading this book would know him as, okay? And so here he shows up, Pul, the king of Assyria. He comes against the land, and Mahanaim gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Okay, so notice here, the king of Assyria comes to attack Israel, and it says here that the king comes and he pays him this heavy thing, and he says, why don't you keep me on the throne? Does that sound strange to you? He's there to attack. What is he doing here? This is like paying protection for the mob. It really is. He's basically saying, why don't you keep me on the throne and I'll be your vassal? And so he begins to pay Assyria. He takes on a pro-Assyrian bent. And like I said, eventually this is going to come back to bite him in a significant way. Because what happens if you give the bully your lunch money? He comes back tomorrow and asks for your lunch money, right? And it continues on, okay? In fact, uh, this amount is so significant, he doesn't have it. And so he goes to all of the most wealthy men in Israel and he taxes them to pay off this foreign king. Verse 20, Mahanaim exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Mahanaim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Mahanaim slept with his fathers and Pekiah his son reigned in his place. In the 50th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, so this is probably after he's leprous and has been set aside, right? Pekiah, the son of Mahanaim, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria. Again, we have a regime change, okay? This time it's from within his own military. It's a military coup here. Um, and although one's name is Pekiah and the other's name is Pekah, they're not related, okay? And so he strikes him down. And so it says here, he struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Ariah. He put him to death and reigned in his place. Now, Argob and Ariah there, I don't remember offhand what Argob means, but Ariah comes from Ariel. It, it, it's a lion, okay? And so some think this isn't co-conspirators, but where he was struck down. If you remember, um, uh, Solomon's temple was built with all of this iconic imagery. And so it may be that there were these two animalistic statues at the entrance of the temple. He's going there for sanctuary. He's wanting to grab hold of the altar, but he's struck down at the door. Okay, that's a potential uh, reading of what happens here. Okay, last one here. Uh, verse 26, the rest of the deeds of Pekiah and all that he did, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, the king of Judah, two years later, Pekiah, the son of Ramalia, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekiah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilsir, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, 
Abel, Beth, Maka, Jana, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all the lands of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. And so here, that big bully who's been taking lunch money, now he takes about half of Israel's property and deports the people in it and takes them back to Assyria. Okay, this is where the destruction begins. Okay. Verse 30, then Hoshea, the son of Ella, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remelia, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Okay, so we've been focusing on Israel, and now we finally come back to Judah, and we'll close here. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jeshurah, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of Kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. Okay, so notice here, during the time when Assyria is starting to come against Israel and God is bringing about judgment, is also when he starts to escalate the discipline against Judah through both the king of Israel who has Assyria on his side at least in the beginning as well as Rezin the king of Syria and so this is um, the beginning of the end of Judah okay it's starting to present here the question is is there going to be a turnaround is there going to be repentance we'll have to wait till next week to see finally verse 38 Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father and Ahaz his son reigned in his place. And so unfortunately, almost everything we read tonight is business as usual, right? It's just that car picking up speed and heading for the cliff, you know, as the intensity and, uh, and the pace just escalates to terminal velocity. But then again, I want you to remember that during this time, even though our author is keeping things pretty tight because he wants to show this escalation uh, and the lack of change, that doesn't deny uh, or doesn't demonstrate a lack of witness. Throughout this time is when the majority of what we call the written prophets, the one who bear books with their names, Elijah and Elisha weren't written prophets. We don't have the book of Elijah, right? But Isaiah, Amos, Jonah, most of those prophets that are pre-exilic, which is the majority of them, operate during this time. God is, in fact, even just not Elijah and Elisha, but an army of prophets that are now being sent and calling for Israel to repent. And then lastly, just by way of conclusion, again, notice the significance of pride. Quite a few of the kings we encounter tonight start right, do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, have good intention, and then pride gets in the way and they take credit and their end is on a different road entirely. This is why the Bible makes constant warnings about pride because it's not that pride is the greatest sin, but it's often the first sin. It's a sin that is fertilizer for other sins. It makes us lift up, it justifies other behavior, it makes us feel entitled, it does things like that. Um, and with Israel, 
by design, there was no room for pride because God was their savior. God was their deliverer. God was their provider. God was their warrior. Even the land that they had was a gift from the God who saved them. Um, There's no room for pride, and that's what makes it such a heinous sin. Let's pray. Father, for our own sake, I pray that you would purge us of the uh, poison of pride. I ask God that you would help us to see clearly and to practice gratitude, Lord, so we remember that you are the giver that all good gifts come from. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us humble and that like the proverb, uh, proverb says, Lord, that you wouldn't give us too much so that we might blaspheme you or too little so that we might curse you, Lord, um, but that you would help us by keeping us in a station that we can handle, not lift us up beyond where our humility can keep us, Lord. And I pray as well, Lord, for the places in our life and the people in our life where we feel like they're running parallel to the history of Israel. We're reading about generations and nations and hundreds of years, but we see these things play out in decades in the lives of our friends and family. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be gracious, and we thank you, Lord, that you are patient and long-suffering, that you do not leave yourself without a witness. But we pray, Lord, that we would see complete returns, complete and utter turnarounds, restorations and revivals. We ask God that you would not just spare the people we love from your discipline, Lord, uh, but that they would return to you uh, and be restored. We ask this tonight, Lord, knowing that that's your heart and that's your desire. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.